I was asked by a group of young people, have any of those companies ever asked you to do something immoral? <laughs> and I chuckled a little bit and I said, you know, it's never happened. No company has ever asked me to do anything immoral or illegal. The reason why is because it's clear when I go in that, first of all, I find companies that aren't going to ask me to do that. Those are the only ones I want to work for. And secondly, just by my way of being, I've made it clear I am not that person. Welcome to YMBA, a podcast brought to you by UCLA Anderson. I'm your host, Alex Grodnick. Who you just heard was Blair Taylor, our guest for the day and the managing director at Accenture. Blair has dedicated his life to serving the underserved. In this conversation, we'll learn how anyone can impact their community for the positive and how staying true to your values is intrinsically linked to the trajectory of your career. Now, let's get right into this conversation. Blair, what are your main responsibilities as Managing Director at Accenture? I lead our North America inclusivity, diversity, and equity practice. I want to reiterate those job commitments because I think it will help establish the themes for this episode. Inclusivity, diversity, and equity. Have these principles always been important to you, or how did they get instilled within your identity? Yeah, so I love the question. I I actually grew up uh, in a five with a five boy household. So I have four brothers, two parent household. They instilled in us early uh, the importance of service and the importance of looking out for those who were less fortunate. They've stressed things like education in a huge way. Um, but they also stressed service to others, um, and they exemplified that. Um, you know, my mother served on the town board, which was the equivalent of the city council where we lived in Westchester. My dad served on the school board in New York City. Uh, he was a practicing lawyer. Um, both of them were college graduates, which was pretty amazing. They, they went to college. They went on to graduate school uh, for two African-Americans back in the 1950s. Um, that was a big deal. Um, and they were determined to have their five boys uh, focus on not only education for ourselves, but education as a pathway to helping others. So, so yes, this was instilled in me a long time ago um, in terms of trying to determine how to make the world a better place uh, and to think about uh, the needs of others and, uh, and, and how I might take whatever skills and talents I develop uh, and channel those um, toward community uh, and, uh, and, and fostering a, a better environment for, for all of us. So, um, so that's a big, that's a big uh, part of the vision I think my parents had for us. And quite frankly, I think that lives on in, in their children. Wow, what an amazing household to grow up in. Now, normally I hold off on the advice section until the end of an episode. But talking with you, I want to flip this episode on its head. The work you're doing is just too important not to front load this conversation with the hope that we can forge a path for our listeners to follow. There are a lot of people who want to take these principles of inclusivity, diversity, and equity into their own life, but might not know where to start. It's so easy to be overwhelmed when one sets out on a journey of service. If you turn on the news, you're bombarded with problems from all over the world, and it can seem like anything you do won't have a real effect. 
What advice do you have for tackling this? I have an expression that I, that I often say to people who feel that overwhelming sense, which is we have to think macro, but we have to act micro, which is to say, you know, yes, think about the problems that the world is facing. And, and we have to consider those because there are solutions to all of those problems. But when you talk about what can you do, bring it down to a micro level, right? Act on a micro level. Help just one kid this year who needs help outside of your family, right? Sponsor one young person who needs to go to college. Go mentor a person who needs assistance, who's in your community, who otherwise might fall off, uh, off the tracks. Like, we can do, we have much more power to change things than we think. I love that. Think macro, but act micro. Now, to take this even further, for those individuals whose jobs are not in an industry that is focused on giving back, how should they go about creating a life of service? Yeah. Uh, and again, I love the question because, you know, I, I, I've always sort of operated from the position that every one of us has a gift and affinity. If you can find a way to make a living, and I mean a legal living, <laughs> from your from your, your God-given gift and affinity, you're never really working, right? So I, I would say, you know, number one, if you can find that, great. If you can't, and, you know, a lot of times somebody says, I've, I have to pay my bills and this is the job I have and I can't, you know, uh, be a musician right now or I can't do service to communities the way that I want to. But you can always do things avocationally. You can always volunteer. You can always be a part of, uh, of something after hours. Um, and I found that when I had jobs in marketing and sales, they, they weren't directly, often they weren't directly tied to community impact. I had to figure out ways to do, to do those things myself outside of work. And then I had to figure out ways to help my company understand the value proposition for engaging with community. That is a very important element that you bring up helping your company understand the benefits of giving back. Giving back is not just a purely altruistic endeavor, but actually has real-world business benefits. Before you continue with your advice on how to find service opportunities, can you describe a time when you had to convince a company of the value of service? So when I was at Pepsi, you know, I was always the person who was saying, hey, we need to support this neighborhood school with this grant. And everybody would say, oh, okay, Blair, because you're doing well and you know, we'll, do, we'll do what you ask. And I'd say, well, here's the value proposition for us to do this, to give $25,000 to this organization that's going to help young kids after school. It's going to help build our brand. It's going to help make my job easier. Um, and, and, you know, you can construct those stories within your organization if you're part of a corporation. So avocationally, outside of work, helping your organization to understand the value proposition of some of the things that may inure to their brand. And then, you know, most of these companies now have mechanisms for you to get involved. Employee resource groups are a great example of that. You know, ERGs, as they're called. Most large corporations have ERGs. And ERGs are really an opportunity for you to work with others from a particular group within an organization. Could be African-Americans, could be Latinos, could be Asians, could be um, LGBTQ, could be people with disabilities. You, you can join one of these groups and help direct their projects toward things that have community impact 
in areas that you care about. So become a leader in one of these groups. Help direct and drive not just your work, but a work of a, of a force du jour, right? Some of these, some of these ERGs have 10,000 members. Right? Imagine that army that you can now help unleash to do anti-graffiti projects, to do helping the homeless projects, to do projects around keeping young people in school and creating mentorship programs. I mean, all sorts of things that companies are now supporting, sponsoring, and encouraging these ERGs to do. It's amazing that companies today are really encouraging philanthropy. This seems like a fairly recent phenomenon. What changed? You know, the the way that I distill this is I think three things have fundamentally shifted that have made it a different era for companies. You know, when I came out of school, most people weren't asking companies about how are you making the world a better place, right? That wasn't really a question that most prospective employees had. Today, that is a question. And fundamentally, employees are making decisions on which company to work for based upon what they are doing in the community, what they're doing on behalf of their people. Um, and and that's, that's where the talent is going. And so if you're not paying attention to it, you're not... You're not getting the talent that you need to run your business. Second thing is consumers are also have also shifted. Consumers are asking companies questions. They're asking them about what are you doing to make communities better? What are you doing about environmental concerns? What are you doing um, in terms of thinking about your people in a different way? And so consumers are making purchase decisions predicated upon what a company is doing. And the third thing that's shifted is the oversight agencies, government agencies, other associations are, as never before, looking after companies and what they are doing and asking them to publicize data on on inclusivity, diversity, and equity, on environmental issues. Um, And so the oversight, the, the someone looking over your shoulder is as never before. And when you take those three things, this is not a period of time where a company can ignore um, as we, as a company might have been able to a couple of decades ago, you can't ignore inclusivity, diversity, and equity, or environmental uh, efforts today. It's just it, you're not going to be successful. And so, therefore, I'm part of you know one of the world's largest consulting firms helping companies to think through and strategize. What do we do? What do we do need to do differently? How do we need to restructure ourselves? What kinds of things should we be measuring? Um, how do we make a bigger impact in the community that's synergistic with our brand and our values and our purpose? Those are all things that I love to do and which companies are now uh, in significant need of allies and supporters to help them formulate their strategies and implement those strategies. And that's what, that's what we get to do every day. This seems like a perfect segue into exactly that, what you do every day. Can you tell us more about your current job at Accenture? First of all, I have the good fortune of working for a great firm uh, in Accenture, um, who who inside the firm is exemplifying how important inclusivity, diversity, and equity is to the firm. And so again, back to that values match, Accenture matched the value of an organization that cares about what I care about, especially since I'm going to be running that, what's going to be running that practice area. Um, and so my role now is I lead the commercial side. I'm not the chief diversity officer. I've had that role in companies, but that's not my role here. I, I have the role of working with clients 
on devising their inclusivity, diversity, and equity strategies and helping them to think out of the box about what kinds of things should they be doing both with their workforce, so internal to their operations, and externally with communities with which they're involved in. And I get, I, you know, this is, a, this is an incredible time uh, within this space of inclusivity and diversity, especially in the last couple of years with, in the U.S., for example, with the death of George Floyd in the aftermath of that, with the uh, advent of COVID and all the implications that that has had for low-income communities in particular and, and underrepresented minority groups. Um, it, it has been a, a powerful time. Companies are recognizing that they have to step forward, that they have to do things differently, that the old playbook of we just make widgets doesn't work in this century. What a lucky time we live in that people are demanding this of the businesses, and it's not just coming from a small fringe group that they can ignore, but actually affecting their bottom line. So now I want to take it back, more towards the beginning of your journey again. Although that sense of service was instilled with you from a young age, your first job from undergrad was actually at IBM and in a very different field. Is that where you wanted to end up? Hands down, IBM is where I wanted to go. And it was interesting because I also had this feeling that sales would set me up, sales and marketing would set me up for the future. Um, and it turns out that IBM at that time put individuals who got into their marketing rep program through one year of sales training before they turned you loose on, on customers. And that's very unique if you juxtapose it to where we are today, where very few companies really have a comprehensive sales program. IBM was intent upon ensuring that you knew how to engage their customers and clients before you went out into the marketplace. And so I, I went through that program for a year, uh, became a marketing representative, uh, and uh, sold to the city of New York, ultimately running the business for the city of New York, um, right up until you know several years later when I said, it's time for me to take an educational leave. Business is where I want to focus. Um, still thinking this, this community side had some appeal to me, but I started to apply for a leave of absence uh, from IBM and, uh, and got, that, got granted that leave of absence and, and then uh, engaged in my business school uh, search after that. So what drove you to that was kind of thinking like I'd like to marry these two worlds of, you know, the service with the business and go to grad school and kind of tie those two pieces together. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah. And, and you know, there, there's also this, this side of me that was this budding entrepreneur, right? Like I, I, I thought to myself, I, I, I have these, all of these passions around service. I have this passion around business. I now love sales and marketing uh, and somewhere inside of me is this entrepreneurial guy who wants to do some entrepreneurial things, which is another, I think, one of those skills that just is transferable, right? And so I, I ended up um, landing on on looking at Anderson uh, very closely, in part because um, at that time and, and still to this day, Anderson uh, had a uh, great reputation in not just in the realm of, of the MBA world, but also in terms of entrepreneurship, also in terms of marketing. And, uh, and when I visited the campus uh, of UCLA, 
I, I, you know, I was from the East Coast. I'd grown up in the East Coast. My brother had gone to UCLA Law School, um, and I went out to visit him and fell in love with UCLA as a campus and a location. And something told me I'm supposed to I'm supposed to be in Southern California my next portion of my life. And so um, I was accepted to Anderson, uh, matriculated there, focused on uh, marketing and entrepreneurship. Incredible experience there. And so loved every bit of Southern California, uh, stayed there for the next two decades almost and uh, utilized this marketing entrepreneurial degree that I had. I would say to the utmost in the years that followed. Couldn't ask for a better experience. So as you were graduating from Anderson, you did something quite interesting to set yourself up for success. Can you tell the listeners exactly what you did? I actually wrote a 15-year plan, um, which I still have somewhere in some box. And in that plan, you said, first and foremost, you needed more business experience. Then you wanted to move into an entrepreneurial endeavor before turning towards service. That is almost exactly how your career panned out. Can you take us through that trajectory? Actually came out, I worked for Pepsi, started as a brand manager, uh, ended up running sales and marketing for about half of the U.S. for the education business for Pepsi. Uh, left Pepsi, started my own companies in retail, in the retail space, mostly in the urban marketplace, um, owning uh, apparel stores. At that time in Los Angeles, we had ended up opening some stores in the Caribbean as well. And it was focused on, the, again, bringing these two worlds together of doing, doing well and doing good, social impact. Um, and this was back in the 90s. Uh, and and when, I, when I left that entrepreneurial, I actually ran for Congress. My, my transition was I ran for Congress in Southern California. Uh, Somebody asked, did you win? I said, no, I got slaughtered. But um, it was an incredible learning experience for me and, and a transition into the world of government because one of the local politicians happened to be a city councilman at that time, saw me on the campaign trail and said, you know, you're, you really got some great ideas. Um, you're, you're new to politics and you, you ran against some veterans and cagey old timers and you didn't really have a chance. But why don't you come run economic development for me? down in the city council. And so I did that, uh, which was a phenomenal sort of externship role. Uh, and it did two things for me. One, it set me up in, in, for my next phase, which was really kind of moving into the nonprofit sector. Um, and the second thing it did is it opened up my eyes that government wasn't necessarily the only way, only pathway to serve communities. I realized then as I got into that role and worked with companies and worked with local nonprofits and worked with local leaders and politicians, that this nonprofit sector actually was pretty interesting. And, uh, and, and so I left, uh, when I left the city council, I, I joined an organization called College Summit, uh, which at that time was the largest college access initiative for low-income students. And again, uh, became EVP of College Summit, running operations across the country. Uh, and Again, got to combine, you know, some of my business skills that I developed with a passion around education, a passion around service, served thousands of young people, grew that organization four or five fold while I was there, uh, and then got the, the job opportunity of, of a lifetime to become the CEO of an urban league uh, system uh, affiliate. Um, and, uh, and, and from there... Uh, 
was there for seven years running that as CEO. Uh, and, and just to fill out the story, from there, I went back into the private sector uh, and, uh, and, and worked for uh, Howard Schultz at Starbucks uh, as chief community officer and global CHRO. He had been one of the key investors in the work that I'd done in, in the Urban League system. Um, and, uh, and actually asked me if, if you, if I wanted to come up and work with him on changing the world for the better, <laughs> I said, well, how can you turn that down? So I went up, moved to Seattle where I'm still located to this day, um, was on the senior team of Starbucks, uh, for about four, a little more than four years, um, and left Starbucks when the white house called and asked me to run then president Obama's signature initiative called my brother's keeper. Uh, and did that, uh, and then ultimately landed in the world of consulting where I am now, um, which, by the way, and I'll say this and then I'll stop, I didn't really think this was where I would be, but I do think it combines so many of the things and, and experiences that I've had and enables me to help companies across the spectrum, so not a single company, but multiple companies working at the senior level and helping them to figure out their inclusivity, diversity, and equity strategies, both internally within their companies and externally within the communities. And so I've had a unique set of experiences across both of those realms, and I think it adds some value for our clients. Wow. What an incredible story, Blair. What do you credit with being so successful at following the plan that you laid out for yourself? It's easy to get sidetracked from one's daily planner, yet you have stayed true to your written word for over 15 years. I've turned down a lot of things that I didn't think I was the right person for. So I'm, I'm also very keen on, on trying to make sure uh, that there's a fit, the right person, the right skills um, and, and with any organization. And if I don't feel like I'm the right person, I will be the first one to say, this isn't the role for me. Um, and let me see if I can help find in my network somebody who does fit this role. I love hearing you talk about the power of saying no, a very underutilized skill that is rarely taught or even encouraged. A quote from author and fellow podcaster Tim Ferriss sums up the benefits very well. What you don't do determines what you can do. Now, learning to say no is one thing, but how do you go about figuring out when to say no? The underlying thing for me with, with companies is a values match. Um, yes, the position matters a lot and the role and responsibilities has to line up. But I, I really have to understand that, that my values um, will never be compromised by a company. I am a values-based leader. Whenever I do, you know, strengths finders or any of the other evaluation tests, that always comes to the top. And so integrity matters more to me than, than probably anything else in relationships and certainly in the relationship that I have with my, with my company. And so it's interesting because if you send off the signal that you are not available, you're not one of those people who will compromise, um, the chances are you will never be asked. Right? If somebody asked me to break the law or bend the rules or you know stick it to somebody who doesn't deserve it or whatever, whatever they're asking you to do that crosses the moral and ethical lines, I always have two words 
that I can respond in retort. And those two words are, I quit. And I, and I assure you, <laughs> I assure you that I would utilize those two words um, if it were to happen. So, you know, the good news is if you can do the upfront matching the right way and you align on things like values uh, and then you exude who you are as a person every day, my example is I've never been asked to compromise. Well, there you have it. Strong words to end a very powerful conversation with Blair Taylor. I'm struck with how Blair illustrated the benefits of saying no. In our work-centric culture, it can be very alluring to take on more than you have the bandwidth for, to constantly be saying yes, but the power of saying no is questionably a much more powerful tool at your disposal. To further wrap this episode up, remember, think macro, but act micro. This applies not only to the realm of service, but to the very structure of any successful business enterprise, which needs big ideas, but attention to detail in order to see them through. Maybe you as an individual can wear both of these hats, or maybe you need a partner to fill the gaps. Either way, by identifying yourself as either a macro or micro-oriented person, you will indeed have a leg up in your next collaborative undertaking, whatever that may be. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Stay with us this season on YMBA for many great stories to come. And be sure to check out Anderson on social media at UCLA Anderson.